I'm Dana Perino. Join me for my brand new podcast, Perino on Politics. As we analyze the 2024 election cycle, make sure you subscribe to this series on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts and leave me a rating and review. Sunday, September 11th, 2022. I'm Kevin Cork. In America, it's a day that will never be forgotten, nor should it be. Never forget what happened on that day. Never forget the bravery, the heroism uh, that was displayed on that day and then the nine months that we were there afterwards. And to make sure that they know we live in the greatest country in the world. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Political ad spending is through the roof, as many primary races saw multiple candidates and several seats in play, even after redistricting. Democrats are fighting predictions of a red wave as both sides try to spend their way to victory. All of the elections in the past four years, you know, 2016 to 2018, 2018 to 2020, 2020 now to 2022, has been steadily in the double digits. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. In the decades since 9-11, dozens of children whose fathers fell that fateful day have themselves grown up to become firefighters. Just one example of the healing which continues for the families who sacrifice so much. A passion for service that lives on in charities like Tunnels to Towers, inspired by those who were there then and are still helping now. In the years since the 9-11 terror attacks, the need for help and healing has never been greater. And Sal Cassano would know. He went to work that fateful morning as a member of the NYFD, just as he had for more than 30 years. And at 77, he's still working. The um, heroism, Kevin, that I saw on September 11th, and so many first responders, uh, knowing that this was going to be the worst day of our lives, my thoughts always go back to the work that they did and the sacrifices they made and their families have made and are still making 21 years later. Talk me back through that morning. I remember um, trying to get down to the city uh, that particular morning. And of course, the West Side Highway was all closed off and I was unable to make my way into town because of the tragedy. Uh, what do you remember about that morning? Well, I was I was in headquarters. I was working uh, in headquarters that day and I remember we listen to the department radio and we hear a blast over there, explosion at the World Trade Center. And I, I thought it was maybe an industrial accident. And then later on, we, you know, quickly after that, we heard it was a plane into the uh, World Trade Center. First thoughts were maybe a small plane. Then I ran to a window right out in the chief of the department's office and I saw a beautiful day, clear blue sky and this big plume of smoke. We knew it wasn't a small plane anymore. And at that moment, I just knew that it wasn't an accident because... No way in the world on a beautiful day like that somebody was going to fly into the building accidentally. And and then I jumped in my car and responded to the Trade Center and worked that day there. You've been honored five times during your career for bravery. You received commendations for meritorious acts between uh, 1979 and 1983 for rescuing five people from burning apartments. There's not a lot of fear in your resume. There's a lot of resolve. There's a lot of resolute pride in what you do. And yet I'm wondering, as you watch that day unfold, did it ever occur to you 
what it might mean to this country. Was there a sense in your mind that this was different? Because remember, uh, Sal, there had already been one accident at the World Trade back in the early 90s, but this seemed different from the outset. Yes, Kev. Uh, you know, I, I served in the, in the Army. I, I was in Vietnam for a tour, and at that very moment when I responded to the World Trade Center, I thought we were at war. I, I just knew that this was different. This wasn't a normal fire. This wasn't a normal plane crash. This was a deliberate act of terrorism, mm -hmm. and I knew at that very moment we were at war. You had a department, uh, Sal, that lost 343 brave souls, heroes, firefighters dying as a result of the September 11th attacks. Where do you begin? How does that even happen? I, I can't imagine the families that you had to not only repair the relationships that you had to mend, uh, you had to be, in one part, a busy man, a person who's trying to get the job done. And on the other hand, you had to put in this box all the emotion of trying to deal with what you're seeing, what you're feeling, and what these families are going through. Talk me through that whole process of rebuilding a very proud department. Sure. We we started, Kevin, the, the next morning rebuilding the department, uh, reaching out to all our vendors. We needed apparatus. We needed tools. We needed masks. But in, and in the same respect, we knew we had to start preparing for funerals. And, you know, it was a difficult task, but we had a great bunch of people working for us. We all knew that we had a department and a city to rebuild and a country. And that was our job. And it took a toll on us naturally, but we knew that we had to honor the members we lost and their families. And we, we put in 18 to 20 hours a day to make sure that we were able to keep the city safe, rebuild the department, and then pay respects to the members that we lost and their families. And we were going to memorial services Every day, I remember a couple of Saturdays, we had 18 to 20 services. We couldn't be at them all, naturally, but we made as many as we could, and we were doing that for weeks at a time. But the families knew that we were there for them. We stressed that we were there for them. If they needed anything, uh, we were going to help them through this difficult time. Uh, and, and we got through it because of the people that worked for the department. Tremendous, tremendous quality of people. You know, I came on the job in 1969, and I was told that, if anything ever happened to me, my family would be taken care of. And I wanted to make sure that I lived up to that promise to our families as well, that we were going to take care of it. And we're still doing this 21 years later. We had a dinner last night for our foundation, and there were 299 flags that were flying at the uh, fire academy. And that was for 299 members that we have lost since September 11th due to illnesses contracted due to the work at the World Trade Center. So that's 299 more people on top of the 343 members we lost on September 11th. Wow, that's just incredible. Tell me more about Tunnels to Towers. People who watch Fox have probably seen the commercials. They've seen the advertisements. But, boy, it's really making a difference. And I'm just curious, not just about what you all do broadly, but I'm curious how doing that has helped you and helped your family heal. Uh, that's a great question, and, and, and it's exactly what you said. is It's helped me, my family, heal knowing that we are doing work for people that have suffered such a terrible, tragic loss of either a loved one or a catastrophic, a catastrophically injured soldier who joined the military because of what happened in New York City on September 11th. I remember going to Walter Reed and visiting a bunch of these kids that were really banged up, and they says, I joined because of what happened to the fire department in New York City on September 11th. 
and I would do it again. And then this is somebody that was really, really seriously injured. And Tunnel to Towers has taken that to another level, not only helping only those catastrophic injured soldiers, but first responders that have given their life to the line of duty and having young children, paying off their mortgages, gold star families. And doing that kind of work, Kev, is probably the best thing I've done since I retired, for sure, because I'm more involved in the organization now that I'm retired. But meeting Frank Silla 20 years ago and becoming extremely close to Frank and his family and now being on the executive board of the Tal's Foundation, I get up to see close and personal the great work that it's doing and helping so many people across the country. It's not only for New York City, it's for any firefighter, first responder, help member of the military, it's help. And I, and I think that's sending a good message out to the people that are first responders and our military. We're going to take care of you because of the work you've done to keep us safe and the sacrifices you and your families have made. What tremendous work that is. And in particular, Sal, I think about, uh, and you've seen these images in, in real life, but I watch the uh, the news and I see the pictures of the, the grieving wives, the widows, and, and small children. But what is amazing is now the kids are adults. They're young adults. And I'm imagining that the work you all did the time that's passed, maybe there's been inspiration. Have you have you heard of any of the uh, children of the fallen who've decided to take up a career uh, in uh, the fire department? Oh, absolutely, Kev. We have, on the 20th anniversary, they, they took a picture, a tremendous picture of all the young men and women that have come into the department. I think it's nearing close to 100 now since September 11th. Wow. Some of them, as, as uh, Pete Gantz, our chief of the department that was killed, uh, his son, Christopher, is now a battalion chief who was inspired to become a firefighter after his father was killed at the World Trade Center. And there's, there's close to 100 of those young men and women that have now joined the ranks of the FDNY because of the sacrifices that their dad had made prior to that. And I think that sends a great message out that this job is, is so well revered that these young men and women would decide to become firefighters after their father was killed. Great message. And, and all these kids are just great. They're great to see. They're great to work with. They're an inspiration to all of us to make sure we continue the good work we do and prepare in case something happens again. And we are better prepared and better equipped and better trained than we've ever have been before. Sal, I want to end by giving you the chance to cap it off for us. Tell us what's the one takeaway. Listen, I'll be honest with you. Uh, there was a lot of bitterness uh, in my heart for years and years after, and it, it still stings. Every time the, holiday, the uh, anniversary rolls around, uh, sometimes it's a little tough for me to watch. I'm not going to kid you. Uh, I don't necessarily want to see the video, and it, there's a lot of high emotion, especially somebody who lived in the metro area that day. Um, what's the takeaway uh, that you want to share with people as we wrap up our conversation? I, I would just tell people out there that I know it sounds like a cliche, uh, but Never forget what happened on that day. Never forget the bravery, the heroism uh, that was displayed on that day and then the nine months that we were there afterwards and to make sure that they know we live in the greatest country in the world. We have such great young men and women that are willing to sacrifice their lives and we have to tell them we will never forget what they do day in and day out. Our firefighters, our police officers, our EMTs and paramedics. And when you see somebody, wave to them and tell them thank you for your service because like I said, we live in the greatest country in the world, and it's because of the people that work to keep us safe. Sal, thanks. Thank you, Kevin. 
Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Political ad spending has skyrocketed, even breaking records in this year's midterm cycle. Overall, the cash is huge, from wealthy candidates self-funding their campaigns to mega donors forking over millions to super PACs, which can raise and spend unlimited cash. According to Open Secrets, there were more than 2,300 super PACs, which reported total receipts of nearly $1.6 billion and more than $523 million spent so far. Some of the most visible spending to us has been on ads. Now that John Fetterman claims to be recovering, let's pull back his hoodie and examine what's in his head. Looks like he has some screws loose. They took away people's guns. That's how it works. I'm Blake Masters. Nancy Pelosi is pumping nearly half a million dollars into West Michigan to buy this election for John Gibbs. Pelosi is trying to... Ad Impact released a report saying they project $9.7 billion will be spent this midterm cycle on ads. That not only blows 2018 out of the water, it would top the amount of ad spending in 2020, a presidential election year. Ad Impact's report says $5 billion's already been spent on ads that have aired or are set to air before November 8th, with an additional four-plus billion likely to be spent. Some of that money, as we've seen, has gone to ads paid for by Democratic groups to highlight a Republican, specifically a Trump-endorsed Republican in a primary. The thinking being it would be easier for a Democratic candidate to beat that kind of candidate. But New York Republican Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis told Fox News two weeks ago. To me, it's unbelievable that, first of all, the Democrats are wasting uh, their campaign donors' uh, funding like this to promote Republican candidates. At the end of the day, in districts where President Biden won two years ago, Republicans are actually leading in so many polls. We believe we're going to take back many of those seats. They should be spending the money defending their own candidates and their own incumbents. The Ad Impact report projects $2.4 billion will be spent on all governor's races, a similar amount spent on Senate races, $1.8 billion on House races, and nearly $3 billion more on races down ballot. I definitely think it's on track with what we were seeing. Sarah Fisher is the Media Trends reporter at Axios. And, you know, those forecasts have even improved in the time since that August report. Now we think it'll way blow past the spending in 2018. And the reason it's not surprising is because the percent increase between all of the elections in the past four years, you know, 2016 to 2018, 2018 to 2020, 2020 now to 2022, has been steadily in the double digits. And part of that's attributable to the increase in small dollar donations Part of that's attributable to the rise of PAC spending in elections. And so I'm not shocked, but I will say I'm, I'm curious as to one day where and when we hit a ceiling because $9 billion yeah. in election cycle, that's enormous. I was going to ask, you know, if, if we keep seeing, you know, the, the doubling of spending <laughs> or something close to it, eventually it, it, it's got to top out. But uh, I guess that remains to be seen. The, the ad impact report found that $5 billion worth of ads has already aired or is booked for air before election day. And they cite the, the reasoning behind that being like a lot of competitive races and toss ups generating, you know, a lot of tension, uh, as well as the idea that both chambers feel in play right now, that the power for each is in play. But that leaves another $4.7 billion they project will be spent. Do we know where or how 
that money will be spent or or anything. Yeah. So tell us. So typically the, there's going to be a little bit of a lag, mostly between now ish and then like the month leading up to the actual election where that's where you have the blitz spending. And that's uh, called get out the vote advertising up until this point. A lot of the ad spend is first spent trying to get people's email addresses getting people to sign up for things, getting people to fundraise. And then as we head into the primaries, right before the primaries occur, that's when you have a lot of get out the vote ads to get people to vote for their favorite candidate in each party. And then it reverses back. So after the primaries, mostly in the spring and summer, you then have it going back to, okay, let's get use advertising, mostly a lot of digital, some TV to get fundraising back in. for the general to get email addresses, signups, et cetera. And then what you're going to see is a huge blitz in the month leading up to the actual general election, the midterm. So most of October, and most of that will be spent on local broadcasts. That's still the number one way that political consultants feel as though they can actually move the needle on getting people to move the vote. Yeah. Talk to us more about the, the shifts that have happened in spending, because even with any changes, as you know, broadcast TV is still the dominant way to spend political ad money. But back to that ad impact report, they do note the the cord cutters, right? The 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 especially younger generations not watching cable TV. So, where else are we seeing sort of more dollars going? There's been a huge shift to streaming, as you mentioned, cord cutting. A lot of the smart TV manufacturers, uh, cable companies that offer skinny bundles, they're starting to slot digital ads into streaming programming, whether that's live or on demand. And political campaigns love streaming because they're able to use more efficient targeting to target Mm. people than they could with traditional television, but they can still do it in an environment that is someone sitting at home in their living room, passively consuming the content. Mm. And that's actually a really good way to, to really make a message, uh, drive a message home in terms of the targeting, just so, Uh, folks understand in the regular TV environment that we lived in for decades, you really can only target people like three ways. One, obviously geographically, you buy out ads in your local markets. Two is you could buy uh, what we call the, the typical demos, which would be age and gender, but that's not really specific, you know? Okay. Yeah. We want to target young women. You know, that's not as specific. Whereas with streaming, you have so much more data. You could target young suburban moms. You could target, Mm. you know, liberal activists. And that really helps campaigns hone the message in more efficiently than when they had to just spend broadly on regular TV ads. Sarah, what about Google and Facebook ads? Because you note um, different companies have different rules about the kinds of political ads that are accepted. And, you know, we all remember what happened with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica ahead of 2016. And I think we, we saw there the desire for political advertisers was the same for many, that you could really target groups, like really get granular. But digital privacy rules mean that that's changed. And you've, you've reported on that. Totally. So I think prior to 2016, especially, political advertising was seen as an opportunity for a lot of tech companies to come in and make a lot of money. And then there was the Honest Ads Act, which it never actually passed. It almost did, but it created a standard by which most tech companies now feel like they have to be much more transparent about the ads that are getting booked in political ads. And so 
that's actually spooked a lot of companies out of wanting to even get involved. So while Google and Facebook still do allow people to buy political and campaign and issue ads in their platforms, TikTok does not, Twitter does not. Up until a few weeks ago, Hulu didn't allow issue ads. Spotify only allows some. I think a lot of companies don't want to get into a position where they could become liable if they don't have the proper disclosures necessary. And so, yeah, the two big digital platforms still are Google and Facebook. I'd say the third rival to them right now is what we were talking about before. It's like the streaming companies that are becoming in a popular way for companies to or for campaigns to target people, even though they're not what you think about as being traditionally mm -hmm. digital. They are digital in nature. And you broke a, a bit of news on that front, right, confirming that Disney would allow issue ads on Hulu after declining to do so, or, or at least they were rejecting some ads. I think New York congressional candidate um, who lost his primary, Siraj Patel, had complained about his ad being rejected by Hulu. And his argument was like, even if the law doesn't say you have to run my ads, you should, because we need a platform to reach younger voters and they aren't watching cable. Correct. Disney changed that policy after there was some backlash from those candidates. I think... Part of the reason that companies were struggling uh, with how to approach political ads is because, one, there is such an unprecedented increase in spend that it's much more visible now when there are political ads on these new platforms than it ever was before. And I think, two, we used to think of political ads as vote for this guy. He's good on the economy or don't vote for this guy. He's bad for climate. It's changed a lot this cycle. Now these issues are really, really tense. I mean, you're talking about gun ads, abortions. These are issues that are soaking up the airwaves that for some programmers, if you think about someone like Disney that has a lot of family-friendly content, they might not feel like this fits in very well with the environment that they're trying to create as an entertainment platform. So each company is going to take a very different approach. I think the overall, though, you're just going to, as a consumer, continue to see a lot more of these ads moving forward. There's also been a lot of reporting, and Josh Crosshauer, who also works at Axios, has done some reporting on this as well, that there have been some, I guess, some what you would call meddling ads, right? Like one yes. political party, mostly Democrats, spending money on ads um, to highlight or, or maybe in some sort of indirect way boost a candidate that maybe is more Trumpy or has actually been endorsed by Trump. And then, you know, I guess we'll wait and see what, what happens with with that, if that backfires or if it worked. But does that present any issues, I guess, for these companies that are accepting these ads? If they, if they don't want to accept issue ads, do they have any issues with these kinds of ads? Great question. I think as long as the disclosures are there and that they fit the guidelines mm -hmm. that have been uh, suggested by the Federal Election Commission, and obviously the advertising guidelines generally uh, evaluated by the FTC, I think it's okay. You know, if there if it's very obvious that there are ads that are being bought by one party targeting another, I think then it's the consumer's discretion to determine whether or not they, you know, care um, or they think it's a problem. <laughs> if there if there isn't obvious disclosures, that's when they can run into real issues. And for Google and Facebook, they've now created these uh, ad libraries that are super, super robust so that they can avoid that issue. I think the mm. where it becomes a little bit of a bigger challenge is if you're a TV platform, typically the way you've done disclosures is you just do at the end of an ad paid for by blah, 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 blah. Right. Is that going to be enough to signal to the consumer what's happening here? And I think that's what they're trying to evaluate. And just a clarification question, broadcast TV, like regular TV, I should say, they can't reject ads or th they could, but there there is a law that says you have to give equal airtime. So that that sort of ends up applying to a lot of ad acceptance, right? 
Correct. Especially because so much ad spend in politics is at the local broadcast level, you know, your local mm. uh, TV affiliates. And yes, there's a couple rules there. One, you have to always offer the lowest unit rate. So it's not like a local broadcaster that leans one way or another can charge another party more than their rival. Two, yes, they do need to accept all ads. You know, the only exception, obviously, is indecency. If there's, you know, nudity or something like sure. that, obviously, sure. they can reserve the right not to to take it. Um, cable does not have the same kind of restrictions, nor does digital. And I think um, that's why you see a lot of ads continue to be funneled into broadcast. But in terms of, you know, could a broadcast company um, reject an ad that they didn't think had a good enough solid disclosure? That's a really tricky question. I think that's where we are leaning on, hopefully, the Federal Election Commission to be able to make more judgment calls on this. The challenge is, and I don't, we don't need to get too far into it, the Federal Election Commission is essentially like a lame duck right now. You know, they haven't had another commissioner that's been appointed in order to be able to sort of break the tie between the two Republicans and the two Democrats. And as a result, oh. they can't pass anything. So I don't think we're going to get any updates from them. I don't think we're going to get any bills passed from Congress. I think that campaigns will be able to get away with some of these weird tricks for now, just because we don't have enough regulatory oversight that's going to, uh, you know, challenge some of these new ways and new tricks for buying ads. Oh, I have to pay attention and follow that. Two more for you, Sarah. Politics aside, I feel like I see fewer ads and, and even promoted posts on social media. I mean, I'm not on social media like I was, you know, maybe a few years ago, but has there has there been a shift in advertising generally on social media? Are there fewer ads? Not fewer, but I think the tech companies have gotten much better at things like frequency capping, so not overly inundating you with certain ads. And the reason that they're better at it is because they know it's good for the consumer experience. And if the consumer experience is good, you'll spend more time on the app. So I think they're doing more things like that. Two, they're getting smarter about the way they do placements. If you look at a company like Facebook, it's no longer just in-feed ads. Now they have ads and stories. They have different various types of sponsored posts. They have video ads. And so it's not the same type of ad hitting you over and over and over. And then finally, I think that ad spend right now, it's still increasing, but the level of growth has slowed compared to 2021. And that's just because the advertising market actually grows at the same uh, rate as the GDP. And as you know, you know, we have inflation and supply chain issues and a lot of issues in the broader macroeconomic economy that's slowing ad spend a little bit. Yeah. And I wonder if places like Urban Legend or whatever that company is called, where they're like hiring influencers to, you know, place, I, I don't know if it's ads, but they're, they're paying influencers to promote things or say certain things. Um, yeah. So maybe that's like an, an alternative way. Finally, Sarah, this is sort of on the politics front, but you've been covering how Google still has not approved former President Trump's social media app, Truth Social, for download on Androids. Um, Google is citing, I guess, content moderation concerns, but it is available on Apple. So what's going on here? Yeah, so we've been told by sources inside Google and the Google spokesperson confirmed it that they are, you know, basically going back and forth right now with True Social over how much content moderation they're using in the app before they can approve it in the Play Store. And what's notable to your point is that Apple has approved it. So clearly this shows a huge difference in the standards between the Play Store and Apple's App Store. I think eventually these two parties are definitely going to be able to come to an agreement. It's not like True Social doesn't have any moderation at all. In fact, if you scroll through that app, you're going to see that they have sensitive content banners, etc., I think mm. the challenge becomes, is it just good enough and sophisticated enough to make sure that the types of uh, bad content 
that Google is most worried about, which is violence and threats, physical harm, um, can continue to be weeded out. I don't think this is a matter of uh, anything like misinformation or anything like that. I think they just want to ensure that any apps that they bring into the Play Store all have a significant moderation process so that they can avoid things like, you know, people threatening, you know, quite frankly, to kill people. (laughs) They don't want that. Fair enough. Sarah Fisher with Axios, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Bye. That'll do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, we'll continue to cover the ceremonies for Queen Elizabeth II and round out the final primaries of the season ahead of midterms in November. From all of us here at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal from Washington. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.